from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a screenwriter that has taken the genre of Southern Gothic to the depths of the psychological terror of Faulkner and the rural dystopia of McCarthy. He's joining me today to talk about his screenplay for the film What Josiah Saw, which is currently streaming on Shudder, as well as his writing process and upcoming projects. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Robert Allen Diltz. Robert, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for joining me. My uh, fiance and I watched what Josiah saw on one of our date nights, and we were both blown away by the mind-bending psychology of the story. So looking forward to hearing your insight into the writing of the film as well as its production. Sure. Um, not what I would call a date movie, but hey. <laughs> you don't know us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not for the general masses. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. If you're as kooky as us, it's <laughs> definitely what we're into. So uh, in an interview with the Moving Pictures Film Club, you said that you initially started writing the story for what Josiah saw when you had to become the caretaker for your estranged father yeah. who was living with you in an old farmhouse that you were renting. How did you end up in a farmhouse in a rural area? Well, it was close to the care facility. Okay. And um, we're in Jersey, so New York City is our backyard. But the closer you are to the city or in the city, the prices just skyrocket for something like that. And so I think initially they told me my father was going to live for about four months. And he wound up living for, I think, like 13 after that. So he was like um, on hospice? Yeah, but I had taken him and I rented this uh, farmhouse in North Jersey. It was, like I said, it was close to the facilities that he needed to get to. It was just easier on me. And it was surreal because um, I think he left when I was about nine years old. And now I'm, you know, in my 40s. And <laughs> he's elderly and he, he really doesn't know who I am. And it was just very, very strange. I remember talking to my sister every single night about this, thinking, um, I don't know what's happening to me. Mm. In that I really felt like I was reverting back to this sort of nine-year-old self. And um, when you say remote, this was remote. 
like the remote farmhouse in Josiah. <laughs> this is this was this mirrored the farmhouse in North Jersey. It was I mean, you had to go a mile and a half before you hit another building. And it was nothing but desolate field. And so it becomes just a point where I don't know what to do when it starts to affect me. And it was really affecting me. So writers write. I wasn't expected to do anything with it. So I just thought, let me write about a grown man and a, an elderly man in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And there was no story to it. There was nothing. And then my father was never a religious man until he was suffering from dementia. And then he became very religious, which was very strange for me, too. And so you just start to think, okay, I'm going to go crazy here. I mean, I'm literally going to go nuts. And um, I can't really tell a lot of people what I'm going through because everybody's going through their own stuff. So I just started writing it. Like literally the first 30 pages of Josiah is, um, it's as close to home as you can get. And yeah, I just didn't know what else to do with it. Well, in that same interview, you said that when you realized that you were writing the story as a form of therapy, you put it away and refused to finish it. So what was it about the the act of actually finishing the story that disturbed you so much? Well, sometimes things get too personal. You know, you don't write necessarily what you know. You just kind of use what you know. Mm -hmm. Um, This one, though, was basically very much along the lines of mirroring the story. And so... It got to that point at the end of the first chapter, if you want to call it a chapter, first act, however you want to put it, where it was kind of left open between Thomas and Josiah. And that's exactly where I was with it. In my own life, I just thought I have no idea where this is going. You know, I'm just waiting for the end game here. But as therapeutic as it may be and necessary as it may be to let go of these things through writing, Something else does happen, though. I at least become very kind of depressed, and it affects me physically when I'm writing something like that. And so normally I will just take a break from a script, but I just didn't see anything other than this story between me and my father, and so I wasn't going to finish it. I think I initially tried to do it to alleviate some of what I didn't understand was happening between us. But then it sort of magnified it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I was adamant, too. After 30 pages, this was it. That was the end of it for me. I wanted no part of it. It's just uh, other people can be very influential Mm -hmm. to get you to do things. And that other people that you're speaking of is Vincent Grishaw. Mm -hmm. You said in the interview that Vincent Grishaw kind of pushed you to get the movie made. Every day. I I think it was almost a year Every single day, he kept hitting me up about it, saying, you got to write some more pages, you got to write some more pages. And this was after I had said, I'm not going to do it. But he can be a pain in the ass. But, um, you know, if it wasn't for him in terms of just seeing something out of it, you know, I guess it's easier for somebody to look from the outside in and see what's there. Forget the fact that it was very personal to me and and in many ways painful. I actually didn't see much of a story there at all. Hmm. Like, I I kept telling him, this dog's not going to hunt. I just did not see any kind of a story there, or I didn't even know it was a ghost story. I didn't know what I had. And there was ways that you can get past that, which is just by introducing completely different movies. It seems like I know that's the sort of one thing that people, when they watch the movie, they say they think they're watching different movies because they are. You know, it tied them all in, but it was the only way to finish the script. Well, what was it about the story that, I mean... Even though you were adamant that you didn't want to finish it, what made Vincent Grishaw still say, oh, no, we're making this. This is going to be a film. 
Um, I think he just gravitated towards the isolation of it. You know, as a filmmaker and as a director and as a visual person, I think he really saw where he could run with this. The opening 30 pages were disturbing. You know, the, um, the dirty magazine thing. I was always in the script. And so yeah. uh, I think he, he <laughs> just sort of gravitated towards these things and said, wow, this is going to get stranger and stranger because it did. That's what happened. It just started getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And so I think just visually also, too, he's fascinated by sort of rural Americana. Mm. I've known him for a long time and he, he always has been. And I think when he read the first 30 pages, again, the isolation, the idea of being alone and going crazy, essentially, which is kind of what I felt like was going on with me. I think that was something he saw, hey, there could be something there. Um, whether it continued after 30 pages, we didn't know. But again, it was a matter of, I'll do it, but I'm going to do something a little different here. And um, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And luckily, he was on board with every page. Well, did the circumstances under which you began writing the screenplay, like being in a farmhouse in a rural area, did that just naturally lend itself to being produced in the genre of a Southern Gothic? Oh, I think absolutely. Okay. You know, when, when, um, and also too, North Jersey is full of small towns. I mean, we think of New Jersey as some sort of metropolis because it's right next to New York City, but you do ride into town and people gossip and they, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of secrets and everybody wants to tell you them and, um, (laughs) (laughs) sewing circles and everything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, although it was never, the story was never set in Jersey. It was always set in Texas. Okay. So are you a fan of the genre of Southern Gothic? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Who would you say influenced you in that realm? Oh, I, you know, screen wise, not necessarily Southern Gothic and not necessarily a a screenwriter either, but, you know, Cormac McCarthy Mm -hmm. just sort of nails the whole Southwestern vibe really well. I think for as much as everybody wants to be Cormac McCarthy, (laughs) I I think that uh, if you were to put a, a name to the influence of this, I'm a huge Faulkner fan. Yes. And, you know, you try not to imitate anybody, just emulate them. But after I saw the movie for the first time, I actually, I thought, wow, it's very Faulkner-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering if that was an influence. Definitely uh, Faulkner-esque. Yeah, yeah I guess. <laughs> um, happy endings don't necessarily mean complete movies. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of Southern Gothic films, that whole genre, there aren't many happy endings. If there were, they would not work with the story that's being told, you know. And it's not that Southern Gothic is impending doom or anything like that. I just think that people have secrets. And in many Southern Gothic stories, they're not pleasant secrets. And uh, and if, you, if you're going to explore them, explore them. They're always going to be a little difficult to confront. And they're usually going to lead you to a place that's uncomfortable. So I don't think that means you shy away from writing like that. You know, you just need to make sure that it fits the story. That's all. Well, the movie was definitely a slow burn thriller, and uh, it's very effective at keeping you in a state of constant anxiety, just walking on eggshells. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it takes careful plot construction to stretch the story out just long enough to keep the viewers on edge, but not so long that you lose the viewer's attention. So So that would, right, that would have been the first act. And there's a lot that got cut from the film. The initial cut of the film was about three hours long. And so 
for as much of a slow burn as it was, it was a three hour slow burn originally. Yeah. So we cut a bunch of stuff out of the opening act. But I think when we leave Tommy and Josiah is when we need to leave Tommy and Josiah because it does get to be a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want to bum an audience out to the point where they're just like, oh my God, enough already. And so when we leave Tommy and Josiah, when we go into the Eli chapter, I think it's it's just about at the right time. Well, so when you were writing the film, you mentioned that writing such dark subject matter did affect you negatively. Sure. And you took a break from it when you needed to. Did you do anything as sort of like a, for lack of a better word, emotional palate cleanser? So I write multiples all the time. I'm never just working on one script. Mm-hmm. I, and it's a, a disastrous way. I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but like, like if I'm writing a script, I will literally be working on three or four different scripts at the same time. And so as I was writing Josiah, I was writing a comedy that took place in Palm Springs. Completely. Like you couldn't get any more um, <laughs> away from Josiah. Uh-huh. Than you could with that. And um, again, I don't recommend anybody does that because, you know, if you're going to sit down and write a script, write a script. But yeah, I, my attention span, I'm always working on different ones at the same time, which is good because I don't finish most of them. But if I didn't do that, there would be no Eli and the Gypsies. That was a completely different script. Oh, okay. So, That's the, the blending of two? Yeah. I thought, you know, this work. So. Awesome. <laughs> well, Speaking of the darkness of the film affecting you negatively, one of my favorite parts of the movie was the visual non sequitur of the T-shirt that Eli wears (laughs) that he has to change out of. So for listeners at home that have not seen the movie, he's at a bar where they do wet T-shirt contests. Yeah. And I I don't think this is a spoiler because I think you have this posted, right? Yeah. Yeah, So he's got to change out of a bloody shirt and he's at a bar. They do wet T-shirt contests. The guy that owns the place gives him a white T-shirt that says best titties across it. Best titties, yes. Um, That was always in the script. It was, I think that might've been in the first draft of the script and it just made us laugh out loud. Um, and again, it's the Eli and the Gypsies chapter differentiated from the script somewhat because of what Vince and the crew could do in Oklahoma, it needed to be rewritten several times. And I think initially Eli wakes up in a tub of ice and they're harvesting his organs. Oh, wow. Like this script was out there. And when he escapes, I remember him being in Boone's office and just thinking, man, we're just going from heavy to heavy to heavy. So we just needed a little something there. And uh, yeah, I put it in as a joke and Vince loved it. That's what I was going to ask, because I noticed it came right around the halfway point of the movie. Yeah. So I wondered if that was like a pressure release valve for you as well as the audience, I suppose. Well, I knew what was coming after that, Mm -hmm. which was it wasn't written yet, but I knew that the Mary chapter was coming. And in many ways, Mary's is the most heavy of all the chapters, you know, Um because I think that probably rings home to a lot of people, this sort of suburban nightmare. Yeah. And so we've come from Thomas and Josiah. I think Eli's chapter it was a lot of fun to write, and they had a ball filming it. But the whole tone of it, it gives you a little bit of a, a respite to go into this world now. It's still relatable to the rest of the story and to the other siblings. Our whole goal with that was just, let's just have some fun with this chapter. And when Jake Weber came on board to play Boone because I think it was late. There was no Boone yet. 
that really sets the tone for that whole thing for me is just Jake Weber because he's both terrifying in the role and um, he's also very charming. Yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. And when the best titties t-shirt comes up out of nowhere, it's definitely something that that character would do. You know, that's that was good. And the audience laughs. And, <laughs> and of course, everybody wants to know where they can get a best titties t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that coming down the line? Are we <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> merchandising? Right. <laughs> But it, again, it's just at the right time. And that's Vince. I mean, the script is one thing, and it, it was in the script. But that's Vince to know when it's getting to a point where, okay, we need a little levity. Because the opening salvo of the film, no spoilers here, there's a story about a leprechaun. It's just a dumb story about a leprechaun. And yet it's used in a way to show the simplicity of the son and this man's anger that his son believes in God. Mm. And so it was important not to make something silly that follow, you know, because we're talking about leprechauns and shooting rainbows out of their ass and this and that, <laughs> it, you know, it could just get silly. And so then it gets very heavy. It gets very serious. The Eli stuff, it's interesting and it's fun, but it's still very heavy and very serious. And then there's just always these moments when the character of Billy and um, Logan have very funny moments that unfortunately got cut from the script. But we made sure to put all these things in there because, again, you don't want to depress your audience to the point where they've just had enough. You just kind of want to get them to that line, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Not being familiar with screenwriting, is that like a common tool employed in screenwriting? I think it should be. Yeah. I think that um, there's nothing better than watching a movie than being surprised. And I, I don't mean surprised by a story or surprised by, you know, just. I'm talking about in moments, you know, you're watching a movie and there's a moment that you weren't expecting and you're surprised by it, whether it's funny or it's horrifying or this and that. It can become a gimmick real quick, but if it fits the story, if it's a story, you know, the guy, the guy's in a bar, (laughs) he needs a shirt. Uh, (laughs) Why not? And you know, it was funny, but it wasn't like lowbrow funny when he's standing in the police station oh yeah not to give away uh, a spoiler but he is returning something that is very important and he's just standing there with this best titty shirt on and the sheriff's looking at him like what the fuck is it's just yeah. the, the way that shot is framed and just kind of hangs on to it is is really masterful <laughs> oh it was it, this is the genius events the original cut of the movie there was an interplay between the sheriff and the woman working the front desk. And when she goes back to get him coffee, you hear a jingle at the door and you turn around and there's Eli holding this little girl's hand. He's got the best titties t-shirt on. Again, I've got to watch the spoilers here, but there's a dialogue between the two of them. And so then when the movie got cut for the final cut of the film, it just works so much better that you just turn around as the sheriff and there's a guy standing there with the best titties <laughs> t-shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just it just with no explanation whatsoever uh, and uh it just worked so much better yeah yeah well so moving on from that scene to mary's story there's a scene in the beginning of her narrative where she's taking a picture of three people with bags over their heads uh so i'm assuming that picture kind of represented her and her siblings Absolutely. So what um, what was she trying to convey with that picture? Well, her photographs in general are inspired by Diane Arbus. I'm a huge Diane Arbus fan. Um, For folks who don't know who Diane Arbus is, she was a photographer. 
She could tell so many stories with one frame. She is also the inspiration for folks who might enjoy The Shining. Mm-hmm. The two little girls holding hands, that's actually a Diane Arbus photo that Kubrick was inspired by. So that was important. Vince and I talked about it. We wanted to make sure that we had that sort of thing, that she had that sort of slant to her work with sort of Diane Arbus. The three children with the bags over their heads, although you can't make them out, it is two boys and one girl. Okay. And yeah, that is Mary's sort of the way she sees her art. That is a visible representation of how she sees her and her, her siblings. So yeah, it's a great shot. Yeah, it's very, uh, yeah, at least for Mary, it seems like it's probably cathartic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really like the scenes with the Carney gypsies, which you said that was a completely different story that you just kind of injected into this. So the Eli chapter was actually about Boone. I was writing a script about Boone and his guys at this bar. The Carneys were always in that. So when we turned around and said, I had said, I'm going to put this story into this and we'll make it work. How do we make it work? There was a tie-in that got cut out in the first chapter where Thomas actually meets the Carneys. Mm-hmm. And so it works better this way now that it's out of left field. There's something wonderful about carnivals because they're creepy. Mm-hmm. They're always dark. Mm-hmm. Whenever you see them on film, they are always dark. You rarely see a carnival during the day. And it just lends itself to the shadows. And that's kind of what just made that whole chapter work was, yeah, we're leaving these bad guys to do a job for the bad guys. And we're heading into the unknown. And so a carnival at night, it just fit perfect. Well, in an interview, you said that there were somewhere between 11 or 12 drafts of the script for the movie. Oh, at least. Yeah. 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 There actually may even be more than that. The Eli stuff was rewritten so many times. There was some horrific stuff going on in the Eli chapter that, (laughs) I mean, I would have been ashamed if it got filmed. Uh So that chapter in particular was rewritten so many times. I think originally I had Eli being married off to the gypsies. And (laughs) and then I think, uh, I mean, there was just some strange stuff going on. In each version, we were all into. And Vince and I were like, yeah, this is going to be great. But we had to keep toning it back and, and just sort of saying, all right, you know. We're throwing the kitchen sink at everything here. And uh, we maybe just want to get back on track to what the story was going to be. So, Yeah, you said in the interview that if one of the early scripts got made, you and Vincent would probably never work again. There, there are <laughs> Is that tongue-in-cheek or are you being literal? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being very literal. The, the oh, okay. scene that he talks about between Thomas and Josiah and these magazines, there are versions of this script where that is the least offensive thing. Wow. Um, that was in the script. Like, literally, you would have looked at that and just said, you know what, we'll take that because the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so have you been sworn to secrecy? <laughs> Can you? I mean, there's certain taboos, you know, that you need to be very careful with. So originally in the original draft, no spoilers because it's completely different now. Mm-hmm. Mary does have a daughter who is mentally challenged. And it just felt like at that point it was becoming exploitive. Yeah. You know, you want to manipulate the audience and say, here, feel bad for her because she has this little girl. But at what point does it become too much? And so that one, when that draft came out, I think we both knew right away, no, this isn't going to work. And then some of the anal raping stuff in the Eli <laughs> chapter. <laughs> we got rid of that. 
Old Eli, he just he can't catch yeah. a break. <laughs> no, he cannot. Yeah. Well, I read that the length of time from script to screen for the film was seven years. Seven years, yeah. yeah. So once you had gotten the financing for the movie, how much of that time did it take to actually shoot the movie? Well, I think the financing fell through twice, and it wasn't like back-to-back. So financed, fell through, a couple years ago by, financed, fell through. Once it was financed for good through Randomix, it was like that. I mean, I literally, at the end of the summer, Vince said, looks like we're going to be ready to go. And then in November, they were shooting. Wow. It was quick. And uh, which element of the production process took the majority of the time as far as... Oh, the farmhouse. No question. The farmhouse. The farmhouse? It was 22 days, and Scott and Robert Patrick, Scott Hayes, that was actually probably, the I think, the first thing that was filmed. Those two in that farmhouse, and they went nuts. They literally, I think the two of them went a little crazy. And, uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was great. <laughs> then all the other stuff got filmed. And then Nick and Kelly came back to the farmhouse. And so it wasn't like everything got shot at the farmhouse at once. When Nick and Kelly got to the farmhouse, Scott and Robert had already kind of lost their minds. And so they were walking <laughs> into it like, what the hell is this? Which is perfect because that's sort of how the story goes. So the majority of the time was spent at the farmhouse. Yeah. Okay. What was, I mean, just being out there in the middle of nowhere, what was driving them batshit crazy? Well, those two, <laughs> so they really, really get into their roles. Uh-huh. They begin to speak to one another as father and son. And oh, it's so not like uh, method acting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, when Kelly and Nick showed up, they were like, what the fuck? They didn't know <laughs> what what was going on. And and Vince just said, go with it. Just go with it. This is this is who they are now. Hopefully they will get back to normal. But right now, this is what we're dealing with. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, so. When I watched the end of the movie, I was afraid that I might be a little slow because I couldn't quite figure out which part was truth and which part was Thomas being gaslighted. So I was pleasantly surprised to find out that you intentionally left the ending in kind of like an interpretive limbo. Yeah, I um, I still don't know if I wrote a ghost story or if I wrote a story about mental illness. I think once I started getting through the Mary stuff, the question kept coming up and it kept being asked, how are you going to end it? What is this? And I thought, why can't it be a bunch of different things? Like, it doesn't change the story. It might change your interpretation of it. But you may see it one way, and someone else may see it completely different. And they can both be right. And I think that that's an interaction that is missing from a lot of movies. And it's not done in a way to frustrate people. It's literally, how do you want to see this? You know, do you want to see mental illness and the fantasies? of a mentally ill man, or do you want to go straight? And either way works. And um, interesting. that was important. Is there a way where, you know, with the exception of the origin of a particular person that shall remain nameless to prevent spoilers and trying to think there was one other element that's not coming to mind right now, but with the exception of two things, is it possible that all of the possible interpretations can exist simultaneously? So there's a couple spots where when I was writing it, I thought, all right, let's really just start screwing around with people. Um, 
<laughs> and listen, anybody, anybody who's watching this right now, this may be a spoiler, so don't listen to this part. All right. You may have it completely figured out, but for me, I thought, all right, I knew it was coming at the end. But even before that, if you sat there and said, I had this figured out the entire time, I know exactly what it is. There's a moment when Mary is in a room and a door opens. And so if you had figured it out one way and said, it's just sort of the imagination of a madman, mm. that all changes when she sees someone else open the door. Yeah. And when I wrote that, I remember thinking, all right, maybe, just maybe I'm trying to piss people off. Just <laughs> <laughs> Because it could still go either way. Is this now Mary's mental illness or she's imagining this? Or is it that there's a haunting taking place? And so, when, yeah, there's definitely moments in there where you definitely write in on purpose these things and just to see the reaction. And it works because if you read about the film, a lot of things are, there are Reddit discussion boards and websites dedicated to what the hell is this movie about? <laughs> you know, and, mm. and, and there's been different interpretations each time. And they bring up little things like that. They bring up moments like that. They say, well, what about when this happened? And what about when that happened? And yeah, it's manipulative. There's nothing worse as a writer to have somebody figure out your film a half an hour in. Mm. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I kind of saw that people were going to have their own thoughts on it. And then I guess selfishly, I just wanted to kind of throw a monkey wrench into it at mm. the end there. There's a few monkey wrenches. <laughs> Quite so, a few. Yeah. Well, so speaking with people that you know personally, and then maybe people that are involved in the Reddit boards, is there any interpretation that's not readily apparent that nobody's kind of glommed onto? You haven't heard anybody talk about that you're surprised by? It was actually, yeah, it was, people ask me all the time, you know, what I was going for, what's the actual ending there? And there are two different ways. There's probably a couple more than that. But of the two ways that people have sort of interpreted it, yeah, those are the same ways that I interpret it, though. But there was a discussion that came up on the Reddit board that I was reading, and it was long and thorough. And I remember thinking, holy shit, is that what this movie's about? Do you remember what it was? It was that none of it had existed, that this was all just Thomas alone. And I, which is interesting because in the original version of the script, which was never my intention. That storyline was never my intention. But I realized that in the original version of the script, that actually suggests that that could be the strongest possibility in the early scripts. And again, it's a happy accident because I didn't intend for that at all. Which is Tommy's interaction with the gypsies. And then when we go into Eli's chapter, would that be Thomas's imagination? And so I remember reading this thinking, wow, I'm always thrilled when people discuss and, and one of the things Vince and I wanted to do is we wanted to do a film that people would talk about. Mm -hmm. you know, love it or hate it, but, but, you know, we'll talk about it. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, the dirty magazine scene is getting uh, a lot of discussion. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I mean, pretty intense. Even yeah. my, uh, my fiancé was like, oh, my God, what is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> so. Interesting story real quick for you about that one. Several actors either pulled out of the project or just couldn't bring themselves to do it because of that one scene. Mm -hmm. 
And we're talking some big time guys like uh, Fonda and who said, I'm just not going to do it. And I always thought that was amazing to me because I know what I wrote in the early versions of the script. And for that to be the scene people got offended for, I could literally give them 20 things mm -hmm. put in front of that. But yeah, that's what it is. But it's a talking point now and it's an uncomfortable scene. And I actually was uncomfortable watching it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the actor, is it Scott Blaze? Scott Hayes. Scott Hayes, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw him in Child of God, I think it was. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. So, I mean, that guy's fearless. <laughs> he is. I mean, Scott Hayes is one of the first guys that signed on. So was Ronnie Gene Blevins. Ronnie played Billy in the film. Little side note, he's a Texan, first of all. But little side note, I write a part for Ronnie in everything I do. Okay. Um, I just, I love Ronnie. And, and so early on, he was right there. Scott Hayes was right there early on, too. And I was unfamiliar with Scott Hayes. And Vince kept saying about Child of God, and he's like, you got to see this guy. He's out of his mind. And if you literally put him in this farmhouse, he's going to lose his shit. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. <laughs> awesome. Well, so the production company for the film, which we've already spoken about, Random X Productions, I did a little research on them and before they started producing films which i think they're still doing they're involved with uh medical devices and international real estate they are a financial fund management company so they've got their hands in a lot of things that's always a dangerous thing when people want to get into the entertainment business of all the things a company could get into that's risky the entertainment business is by far the riskiest and it's just an odd thing where they basically said, we don't want to do anything everyone else is doing. We want something completely different. And they got it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, I believe you quoted them as saying that they were looking for something different and wanted to make a statement. They, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I'm thrilled for them. I really am. I mean, take a chance on this script. Vince is very persuasive. And so I would never, ever doubt that anybody would take a chance on Vince. But this screenplay, it was only ever going to go one place, and that was to Vince. There was no way I was ever going to write a script like this and say, hey, let me try to sell it or see if anybody's interested in it. It was just such a, it's a heavy script. It's a bizarre script. There's very little feel-good moments in it, and um, there's a lot of fucked up shit in the script. And, and so for a production company or people who are getting into the production business, to have that script in front of them and say, yeah, we're going to make this. Yeah. Hell yeah. You know, I mean, absolutely. Well, I mean, you, uh, I think you described Vince as a bulldog. Yes. Yeah. So uh, did he have to engage in those bulldog tactics with Randomix or were they pretty? Well, one of the things about Vince is I'd say 80% of the film is done before he ever shoots. He's fastidious like that. You know, everything's planned out. Every shot is already thought out. Everything is straight through. And so when he presents or pitches, he's going in there with a lot, you know, and, and it's a leap of faith still. You're talking to the random X folks and you're saying, hey, that's what it is. It's a leap of faith. If you, if you go on this journey with us, we can't guarantee you anything, but we can say that you've never seen a film like this before. So, and again, all credit to them. There were so many safe ways to play getting their feet wet in film production. This film was, <laughs> I wasn't there for the pitch meeting. I have no idea how you pitch this movie. <laughs> how do you sit in front of people and pitch this movie? Yeah. 
Yeah, I just uh, envisioned that Seinfeld episode where they're trying to pitch a show about nothing. <laughs> like, about we're nothing, trying to yeah. pitch a movie about what? <laughs> I literally could imagine Vince every 10 minutes saying, but wait, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> and he would be correct. He would be correct, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just well, it keeps coming on to you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a solid movie. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, so your other projects I was looking at, you wrote a short film in 2009 entitled, and am I pronouncing it correctly, Iliki? Yeah, that's it, exactly. You know, that was, um, that's a Vince Kashaw film as well. Mm -hmm. I've known Vince a really long time. He literally called me up and he said, in three days, I'm going to Fiji. Can you write me a short film? And uh, I said, what do you want it to be about? And he said, I don't care. <laughs> so i looked up some legends and uh he shot it in two days and i was surprised yeah i was surprised one he get it done and two it actually turned out pretty good was he doing it to cement to some sort of film festival no. or just... no he was literally going on vince is always a director uh-huh. if you were around vince a lot it would drive you nuts he's never not a uh, filmmaker and so he was literally going on vacation with his girlfriend, I think, to Fiji. And he decided, you know what, honey? I'm shooting um, a movie. Yeah, I'm going to shoot a movie. <laughs> <laughs> a man dedicated to his craft. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so you also have an upcoming project that is, I believe, currently in production called Anatomy. Anatomy, yeah. Which I understand is about a contract killer. Yeah, it's uh, it's Tommy Nash was playing a lead character named... George, he's a terrific actor, and uh, he just sent me pictures. One of the things about the role is there's two Georges in the film. There's a normal George, which is sort of flashback stuff, and then there's George as he is now, where he's about 120 pounds. Um, he's just literally a skeleton, and uh, Tommy has lost all the weight. He's unrecognizable now, um, and it's a story about a guy who's on the way out. He knows he's on the way out. It's not a shoot him up or anything like that it's um it's literally about a man who's uh, coming to terms with his own death and he's going to train somebody else to take his spot there's no car chases there's nothing it's literally almost as as boring as it could be what they do and yet the character has to try to pass on not only how to do this job but as much wisdom as he can with with this little amount of time he has left and real proud of it i think they're going to do a great job awesome What's the timeline on that like as far as? Well, Tommy can't lose any more weight. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's literally eating like an apple a day. So I think they filmed all the normal stuff when he was normal weight. I think that was already done. And then the production had to take a break, obviously, while he he drops all this weight. And now they're they're resuming shooting again. So it's going to be a quick shoot. Just I'm super proud of him, too, for losing I mean, he is unrecognized. He looks like Christian Bale in the machine. That's that's what I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. Were, yeah. That's it's exactly just incredible how people yeah. can I, withstand I, that. I mean, it's it's insanity. But, uh, yeah, he's he's doing all right. So, um, yeah, so that, like I said, sometimes you write a script where you know you don't need a huge budget. Somebody could put as much money as they want into it. But if you said to somebody, you could do this for ten grand, you have to be – just real careful that you're writing actual people and actual characters and an actual story. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm real proud of that one. Nice. So anatomy was a movie or a TV series. 
Anatomy is a movie. Movie. Okay. But you do have a TV series in development called American Coyotes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? So originally it was called Lolinia, Mm. um, based on a true story about two American guys. I think fuck up might be a good description. (laughs) Okay. Who made a living transporting people over the border. Things did not always work out well for them. And so that is... I keep calling it a lot. They changed the title on it. It's now American Coyotes, but uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. That one's going to be a lot of fun. That one's a dark comedy, and it's um, it's a little vicious too. So hopefully they can pull that one off as well. All right, sounds good. I think the most current thing you have, maybe I'm wrong. You are in the process of writing a project called Enlighten Up. Is that correct? Oh, so I, I do enlighten up with a woman named Bridget Chama, who's a stand-up comedian. She's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's unlike anything I've ever done. I've never written a sitcom before. And I'm just, I'm really, really, really proud of it. It's kind of, um, I guess, Carol Burnett and I Love Lucy kind of thing. It's completely different for me. I am not the guy you go to and say, hey, write me a sitcom about a single <laughs> gal in the city that is, you know. That's quirky and upbeat and this and that. I'm not the guy you go to when you want quirky and upbeat, no matter what it's about. And uh, But she's terrific. And yeah, we're super excited about this one. So it's called Enlighten Up. It's um, about a single gal in the city just trying to find her way. And how did you get linked up with her? Oh, I've known I've known trauma for a long time. Number a long time. And one day she said to me, you know, I have this idea for a show. So I said, what is it? And she told me about it. So basically, back and forth, back and forth. And then we hit on something that just seemed to work. It was it was very, very bizarre. But um, yeah, I'm real happy about it. We've got uh, a full suite. We've got eight episodes already written on that one. Nice. Well, is screenwriting something you began directly, or did it evolve from other forms of writing? Uh, well, I was a theology major in college. Okay. It's a little bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think there were certain things that you saw early on. So the one that made me want to write, like where I said, boy, I'd love to do that. I don't want to be a director or anything like that. I just want to write was Andy Walker's script for seven. Oh God. Yeah. So when I read the script, cause the movie's great, obviously, but when you read that script, it just, it's like, my God, it doesn't get any better than this. So I must have written 10 or 15 screenplays after I read that. They're all terrible. But, you know, just to try to get to a point where you can say, okay, this is something you want to do. But that one, and there's been great movies, but that screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker, I mean, it was literally, I, uh, I don't even know how to explain it when I read it. I just thought, well, yeah, this is what I want to do. And it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where if, if you're going to jump into it, you have to continually write. I think too many writers will write something, especially early on, and then spend the rest of their life trying to get that one thing made. When I wrote my first screenplay, I knew, wow, I'm going to need to write another one of these because this is <laughs> no good. You know, I think I said that a bunch of times. So, uh-huh. you know, it's just, uh, you have to get to a point where you find your own voice too. And if you're not sure if you want to be a writer or not, you have to continually write because unless you do find that, it's not going to be something you're ever going to really gravitate towards. And I didn't have the easiest life growing up. And there were writers who weren't screenwriters who I gravitated towards. Steinbeck and Faulkner and Bukowski and those guys. And it took me a while as a, to figure out that, hey, as a screenwriter, I can 
sort of portray that, you know, what I knew. And But I don't think I had any plans on ever being a writer at all until I read that script. And to this day, I'm still trying to out seven, seven, which can't be <laughs> trying to write eight. <laughs> yeah, trying to write, try to write eight. It's not going to work. It's the perfect script. Yeah. Well, admitting my ignorance when it comes to screenwriting, how does one get a hold of a movie script to read? So back when I read seven, there weren't PDFs or any of these other things. I actually had a hard copy of that script. I was in Tower Records in New York City. Andy Walker actually worked there. Really? And um, somehow finagled this script, read it on the bus, could not put it down. And that was the first four right now. Nowadays, if you see a movie you love or this and that, eventually the script is available. You know, you can find it online. You can, you know, they get leaked all the time. They, um, that's one way to do it. One way is to say, I love this movie. Let me see what the script was. Um, the other way is to read the script before you watch the movie. You know, either way, it's going to maybe spoil something for you, but screenplays are so different than the actual films. And I don't mean story-wise. I just mean in terms of how you react to them. You know, when you've got something in front of you and you're reading it, so it's you're using your imagination, basically, mm -hmm. to fill in the pieces. And so, yeah, you cannot write screenplays unless you read screenplays. You just can't do it. And no matter how much you think you've got it figured out, you don't. Because any script you read that has got a lot of hype behind it, then, listen, I can name you 10 or 20 screenwriters who suck who i cannot stand <laughs> somehow you know and again when you get into the things where you're on discussion boards with other writers and everybody wants to read their scripts and you know read my script read your script that's not what i'm talking about I, i'm literally talking about find a movie you love and read the screenplay for it and you'll see whatever you loved about the movie will be in that script it'll come through in a different way but it'll be in that script too and that's how you learn how to write and so you're saying you can just kind of download a pdf online or is there yeah, a particular I mean, channel you, oh i mean if anybody's listening to this and you want to know so a lot of times these things get released online for consideration for awards and this and that but well if you go to a site like simply script any script you could ever possibly want now sometimes they don't we withheld the script i mean maybe eventually it'll make its way online but because of the nature of our film and the ending you know, you don't want that out there. And, and most people don't want their stuff out there early on, but it eventually will always make it up there. Always. And uh, if you go to, like I said, if you go to a Simply Script or, or this and that, and um, that's the one that comes up top of my head. Yeah, all the scripts are there. Okay, cool. Well, so what is your process for character development? Well, I like to spend a lot of time with the characters. I, I do get to know my characters very, very well. I don't tend to write stories that are just sort of, the character's just taking up space, you know. There are great movies and great scripts where that's the case, where it's the story that is as far. I like to write stories based on the characters. And to do that, you really have to get to know these characters. It's too easy to say, Eli, and what you size saw as a fuck up. <laughs> it's just too easy. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to write him in a way, which is brilliant by both Nick and by Vince, the way he directed him. To take a character like that that has zero redeeming qualities, mm -hmm. and yet you still have to root for him, and you still want to root for him. The anti-hero. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And But to do that as a writer, you need to really invest. You have to know Eli inside and out. You know, you have to turn around and say what he does at the sheriff's department. That's who he always has been. 
And yet his past and his past at the farm, there's all sorts of sides to him. So you need to explore all of them or that character just doesn't work at all. Uh, Mary's another one. You know, Mary would be very simple to write as a sort of sheepish. And yet there's a dinner scene in the film, which is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And you realize, holy shit, there's another side to her. Mm-hmm. And again, that's what you have to do. You have to turn around. You have to have real people, real characters. If you can do that and an audience says, you know, what, I know somebody like that or I am somebody like that. Then no matter what you throw them into, no matter how far off the story goes and stuff like that, as long as they know the characters, then you can take them wherever you want to take. Them. So, well, do you have a uh, particular atmosphere that you write in like a designated spot? No, I'm a pace writer. So I will literally get up and walk and pace and pace and pace and work it all out and then just sit down and type it out. It's very disturbing watching me write because I literally, I'll write something, then I'll get up and then I'll be talking to myself for 15 minutes, walking back and forth. <laughs> um, and then I sit down and I just type. That's it. Okay. Well, so when you write a screenplay, do you use like screenwriting software? Because I know there's like an oh, industry. Sure. Sure. And you can use anything. When I started, I used a typewriter. And I, people don't even remember what they are. But I used to use a typewriter and you used to have to do the formatting that way. And it took forever. So if you have Microsoft Word or any sort of writing program on your computer, there are templates. Just go online and find them. Um, I use Final Draft when I write. It's just it's kind of the um, the thing that we use. Go back and forth. But um yeah, there's a dozen different screenwriting programs out there or templates that you can use. The important thing is that screenplays need to be in format for a reason, because when they go into production, this is how they break a script down. And so write on a pad with a pen. It's totally fine. You can always get that into script format later on. The biggest thing is when you write a script, you know, you have to remove yourself from sort of action slug lines that are 20 lines long, you know, that's, that's good. Like, like, uh, and that takes a little practice, but yeah, just keep your formatting tight. And if you're like me, throw in at least a dozen typos in every script that, uh, <laughs> that people will flag you for immediately. And yeah, I mean, so any writers out there, you can literally write on a pad and a pen, or if you're working in Microsoft Word or any of those programs, just go online and type in screenwriting template for any of your programs. They're readily available. Okay. And so since you have to take this creative work and then format it, do you really have to kill your darlings a lot in a sense? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. I have great scripts that I love where I break all the rules in the scripts. Uh-huh. And I know I have to go back and just gut it all, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> you know. All we do is we build a foundation, you know, we're the blueprint. All the other stuff that you think that you know should be in a script and this and that, and let's, this is what my characters are thinking all the times and this and that. That's all going to be done by the actors and the director and your cinematographer and your hands off on that. So it's best to try to just convey it as simply put as you can in a script and It'll just translate a lot easier. But I do have a bunch of scripts that I've written where, like, I don't even know if it's a book or if it's a script. So, and, <laughs> yeah. and those are no good. How does it work when you're writing with another person? Like, I think I read that you wrote American Coyotes with Tiago Roberts, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, the um, sitcom that you're writing. 
Yeah, I think it, it'll change between different people. But for me, generally, it's the same thing with Bridget. We'll flesh out the ideas and get the storylines down, and, and I'll do the physical writing on it. You know, it could be different. It could change. And then we'll go over the scripts and, and then what we want changed or this and that. And I can usually bang them out pretty quickly. But yeah, that's Tiago is the basis of American Coyotes. And so when he originally came to me with that, he had written a screenplay for it. He said, can you read my screenplay? And I did. I read it. I called him that night and I said, it's God awful. <laughs> this needs to be burned immediately. <laughs> um, but I did tell him that there was something there, you know, that there was definitely something there story-wise. And so we should really do a series, not a movie. And then um, that's basically how it is. You just, you figure out what it is you want to tell. And then usually one person or the other will sit down and type it out and kind of get it in format. Screenwriting itself is its own sort of art form because you have to be able to say a lot by typing a little. Mm-hmm. And, you know, generally when you're working with somebody and they're not used to screenwriting, you'll get a lot of overwriting. But I'm guilty of that too, so. Well, getting a little bit more technical into screenwriting, I know as we've talked about, there's an industry standard format. And I think that begins with a treatment. Is that correct? It can. Okay. I mean, I very rarely write treatments. I'll just jump into a script. I've always been a little resentful for companies who say, well, just give me the summary of the treatment. Because if a script's written, then just read the script, you know. But generally, I think it goes 50-50. I think if you're pitching a project, you're generally pitching a treatment or a summary or a deck. We call it a deck. And, um, you know, whether they want to like it or not, I will never pitch a treatment, a summary, or a deck unless the script's finished. So that if they turn around and go, well, that's interesting, I can just turn around and say, well, here's the script. It's already done. You know? So are there specific parts of a screenplay, like a, like a novel has a denouement? And... I mean, for years and years, screenplays followed a very standard sort of rule, which was three acts and blah, 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 and all this other kind of stuff. That doesn't interest me. Not that everything has to be nonlinear or linear in a script, but if there are rules for anything, they're meant to be broken eventually. Uh-huh. And so just break them. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. You know, and as long as people know, okay, I know what they're doing here. You're fine. But um, although I do kind of think it's kind of funny because Josiah is kind of a three act. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's just done a little differently, but uh, it's probably the most traditional sort of uh, way of screenwriting that I've done because I could do it in this one and base it on these different family members. Hmm. Well, which part of the screenwriting process do you find the most enjoyable? The title. (laughs) I know it's the dumbest thing you've ever heard, but it's the guy's honest truth. Okay. If I can get a great title, then I know, okay, I'm going to want to do this script. And I won't even have a story yet. As long as I have a great title, yeah, I guess a title's incredibly short. Even the longest titles are yep. still incredibly yep. short. So you've really got to convey a yep. pretty rock-solid message. and just yeah. Yeah. yeah, the first 20 pages of any script is always the easiest. You're just kind of going and, and you're relaxing and you're just going with the flow and you're not constrained to the, um, the story yet. You know, when you get to halfway through a script or if you're on page 70, then everything has to come to a conclusion and you have to fit what you've already written does it make sense in the story when you're opening up on the first 10 20 pages you can just write whatever you want 
and then see what you've got from it. So those are always my favorite. And the least enjoyable? The rewrites. The rewrites? <laughs> the rewrite. There's nothing worse than working on a script that you wrote four years ago. Uh, and just like, oh, my gosh, you know. Yeah, the rewrites are always the worst. And there, uh, just so everybody knows, there are always rewrites. Always. Well, so you uh, stated in an interview that you've known, or actually stated just now on the show, that uh, you've known Vincent Grishaw for years. Yeah. And uh, you've uh, collaborated with him on previous and upcoming projects. So how exactly did you guys meet and join forces? So back when the internet, there was a, there was a, it's not around anymore, but there was a terrific, terrific sort of site slash community called Trigger Street where directors and writers and producers and stuff. And it wasn't, Hey, I'm looking for a script or this and that and blah, blah, blah. It really was the only community to this day that I really just sort of went online with and said, okay, this is cool. And you could bounce ideas off people. And he had read a script of mine there and we're going back like 2006. And he hit me up and said, oh, my God, I love this script, but I fucking hate the ending. Which, <laughs> and, and we would just go back and forth then. And it's I've known him ever since, you know, just the brutal honesty that he yeah, has. Okay. Um, to this day, I will tell you, though, he's completely wrong about that script. <laughs> does that community still exist what was the no no no, no? Okay. it hasn't been back but it was it really was terrific i mean that that place was great i mean there's lots of communities like that this one though was really like if you were looking for somebody this is where you went so well you personally what genre of film do you enjoy the most uh I mean, I do like them all. I'm not the horror guy. I'm not the sci-fi guy. I'm not the, you know, I my favorite film of all time, this should be no surprise to you, is The Shining. I think The Shining is a perfect movie. I really like the psychological stuff a lot. Yeah, so know, I... the, the sort of the heavier, the better, you know, and, and um, the stuff that really makes you think, you know, in terms of horror, I do like films like Hereditary. Oh, you know, yes. Hereditary is, um, you know, Astor's a genius, I think, and and those kind of films are great. And yeah, I just, I like the films that make you want to talk about them the next day. You know? And in terms of The Shining, like, there's no need to plug The Shining. It's The Shining. Yeah. But, uh -huh. I mean, you will have people get into fist fights over what they think was going on in The Shining. And I love really? that. Yeah. <laughs> Big Kubrick fan as well, I'm assuming. Oh, I love Kubrick, yeah. Yeah. Kubrick was great. He would fuck with people too. I, I remember he was talking about The Shining on a Japanese television show or whatever. It's very obscure. He very rarely did interviews. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, was The Shining a ghost story or was it a man going crazy or this and that? And he said, no, it's about pedophilia. And he left it at that. <laughs> no and everybody shit. was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. His stuff is really impressive. So... Tell me about the life of Robert Diltz outside of writing. No, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a little crazy since the movie came out. Things heat up. You don't have a long window for that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's just been super busy trying to get as much done as I can, you know, and um, because it could all be over next year or next week, you know. And so it's me and two dogs, Bo and Molly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's basically it. All right. Sounds like you got enough projects to keep you busy, though. Well, thankfully. Yeah. Because um, 
I would much rather have a nine to five job where I got up, clocked in and mm-hmm. clocked out, you know, which I used to have. And then things kind of heated up here. And so now you're right and you're right and you're right. It just doesn't feel like much of a living, you know, being a, a writer. You know, I don't consider that punching the clock, but, you know, I'll take it for as long as I can. Well, <laughs> you're good at what you do. Keep on keeping on. No, I appreciate that. What well, has been fascinating talking with you? Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been a blast. So as we uh, bring the show to a close, is there any projects you'd like to plug or reiterate? Um, just super proud of uh, everybody that did what they did on Josiah. Super proud of Tommy Nash and what he's doing in anatomy. So definitely look out for that one. And if you ever get a chance to look up Bridget Trauma, she's a genius. She's a very okay. funny person. So Will do. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And be sure to check out What Josiah Saw, now streaming on Shudder. And Robert, thank you again for joining me. Oh, I thank you, Vince. I appreciate it. I really do, buddy. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for the next episode, where I will be joined by author Christy Aldridge. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. I'm a learn. I should set to let it burn.